Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Eric Brewer with Integrity First Homebuyers, and he flew in from York, Pennsylvania to talk about how his company did 375 investor transactions and another $75 million in sold volume on the traditional side in the last 12 months. Crazy, crazy numbers. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, founder of the Offer Fast Homes app, the only MLS for off-market wholesale properties, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. Uh, some of you guys may have noticed that we ventured off the reservation for skip tracing. We went back to the old reliable batch skip tracing. If you guys like our show and want to help us, please go to our white label, skipfast.com, to do your skip tracing. And if you get value today, it'll help us a lot if you could tag a friend below, share this episode, or comment below. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Eric to answer. You ready? I'm ready to roll. All right. So first question is a simple one. What got you into real estate? <clears throat> um, so I got my start in business in the car business. We talked a little bit about that earlier today. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the sake of, of time today, uh, I got started in the car business and spent eight years in the car business, learned an awful lot, established a great work ethic, learned how to sell, uh, and uh, learned a little bit about how to manage, and um, got out of the car business uh, I don't remember the exact year, but it was right around the time that my, my oldest son was being born and just realized that the time commitment was not going to work for me yeah. in the car business. And uh, so I got out of the business and made a commitment that I was going to take about the next six to 12 months to do some soul searching and figure out what my next move was going to be. And during that period, um, I kind of identified real estate, um, but not a, a niche or a segment as the next move for me. I just thought I would get involved in the real estate. And I, uh, in the car business, my involvement in finance and understanding of finance, I felt always gave me an advantage. So I decided to get started in real estate and finance and uh, actually took a, a position with a local mortgage company, learned how to become a loan officer, was in the process of doing that. Mm-hmm. And the owner of the car dealership that I worked for called me and said, um, hey, I heard this radio commercial about flipping houses. And so I didn't even understand what flipping houses was back then. So this was 2005. And uh, he said, I think you would be good at it. And I'd like to talk to you about teaming up and working together. So I did. We went and had lunch. Uh, long story short, two days later, we decided to start flipping houses. So you heard a commercial. Did you at least go to the event? or you just uh, like- So we actually went to it's a brick and mortar flipping school. It's called Investors United um, in a suburb of Baltimore, Maryland. I, I mean, if you generally look for it, it's 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 a brick and mortar school. Huh. So they teach you how to do everything from from lead gen to contracting to um, all different aspects of predominantly wholesaling. I, I would say is their, their their core focus. But it was a twelve month course. We paid it was like ten or twelve grand for a twelve month course. It was a significant investment. Two months in, we're like, all right, I think we got the hang of it. And we mm. bailed, didn't go back for the next eight months of instruction, yeah. um, and bought our first house a couple days later. So Let's talk about that first deal. Yeah. Uh, first deal was a referral, um, oddly enough, and ended up turning into like a land development deal, which mm-hmm. was certainly not our intentions. But we put the house under contract and then found like its zoning was, uh, I don't remember the exact zoning, but allowed for like high industrial use. Um, which was actually a negative at the time. We had our title company do the search and like, you know, you're going to have some, you're only going to be able to sell this to a, a commercial buyer. Like, oh my gosh. And he goes, well, unless you can buy the neighboring houses and you get over two acres, it could be, you know, worth significantly more money. So we actually went through the process of buying the other three neighboring properties and ended up selling the the, the total of the four homes to a local car dealership. 
oddly enough, <laughs> that was going to put um, a small franchise there. Yeah. Um, back then, Suzuki's were still being sold in the U.S., and they were going to put a small Suzuki dealer there. So we sold it to them. Made re- I, mean, I think we made $100,000 on the deal, sold four homes. So Wow. You know, so not bad for a first deal. Not bad for a first deal. And then we were hooked, right? Like the, yeah. the, the, the hunt, the chase was, was um, pretty exhilarating. And then um, putting together, you know, four deals to make one was pretty cool. We made a decent return. So um, that was our first deal. And then so, what happened after that? Um, we just became a little bit more focused with um, back then we did 75% of our business was on market. Um just started making more offers, looking at more homes, making more deals. Um, our next deal we bought off the MLS, a bank owned. Um, my reno budget was twelve. We spent twenty five. Mm-hmm. So learned a valuable <laughs> lesson there. We we you know we're fortunate enough to sell it. So you got to think this is like two thousand six. So the market was pretty hot. Mm-hmm. Um, we got lucky enough that you know we sold it for more than we anticipated. You bought an um, REO property in two thousand six. Yeah. Yeah, so well, it's because my reno budget was twelve when it was really twenty two. That's why I was the guy that was willing to pay more than anybody else. Got it. So, um, but we ended up making a little bit of money on that. Um, it was a valuable lesson, and just got really, really good at you know we were always the first. I mean, coming from the car business, right? Like it was just one of the things I learned was responsiveness was super important. Mm-hmm. The dealership that I worked at, as I came up through the sales ranks. I talked a little bit about this with you earlier today, but like I would talk to anybody that moved. Like if you drove on the lot, I would sprint to go talk to you. Yeah. Um, so part of my upbringing in sales was I just was the first. It wasn't always the best or the smartest or the best salesperson, but I got more deals because I was just first. Got it. Um, so we applied that approach to the real estate business. And like if it was a Saturday at seven o'clock at night, I'd go look at it and get an offer in. Um, back then, you could actually get REO offers accepted same day. They wouldn't have this holding pattern, or highest and best wasn't even a, you know a thing back in two thousand six. Yeah. Uh, not on the REO side anyway. And um, we got pretty good at buying bank owned properties. And I would say we were probably better at, as I think back and reflect to, to when we first got started, we were better at selling. So I wasn't really good at acquisitions. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I was horrible at renovations. But we were great salespeople. We came from the car business. So if I paid a little bit extra for it or went over my reno budget, we were really good at finding our own buyers. So we hardly listed anything in the MLS. So you, oh, really? We, we fizzed almost everything. Um, I put a Fizbo sign out front, a little classified newspaper ad. Um, you know, bad credit. Okay, everything I pulled over from the car business. So we were saving you know, six to $12,000 on realtor commissions yeah. that allowed us to a little bit more freedom when we bought the home. Um, so that was how we got started. I mean, I was, I was bad at buying, but we were quick. Um, if it smelled like a deal, we'd lock it up and figure the rest out. And I think we bailed ourselves out quite a bit just by being really good at selling the deal. Yeah. Uh, There's not a lot of people I know that started off buying off the MLS. So that's impressive. Um, and then 2006, what was the journey like? Because there was this little thing that happened around 2008. Mm-hmm. So we got, I mean, we got better. Um, you know, we, we, we established some relationships with some of these REO agents. If you think back to like 2006 or 2007, um, it's a lot like what we were dealing with now. So there was a there were actually wholesalers that would attempt to tie up properties in the MLS mm-hmm. with assignment agreements and then had success assigning them. So the REO agents would gravitate towards us because I was fortunate enough with my partner that we had a significant amount of cash to operate with. So yeah. we, we were you know solid real cash buyers. Um, so REO agents would would you know gravitate towards us. Um, we would always afford them the opportunity to be dual agent on the deal. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they had a slight advantage in dealing with us versus maybe another buyer that was represented by an agent. 
So we always recognized those little advantages and made the best of them. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we just we 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 got really good at buying stuff on the MLS, and by the time that started to change. 2007, 2008 rolls around and 75, 80% of our competition was gone. We were good at buying on the MLS as a competitive market. And we continued that. It wasn't until probably four or five years ago um, where we started to see that change. Mm-hmm. And I really started you know, to, to get into direct-to-seller marketing about four years ago. For the first 10 years that we were in business, oh, we wow. bought 80% of our stuff off the MLS. Wow. Yeah. So you're finding that your relationship with REO agents gave you the competitive advantage mm-hmm. in that time. Yeah. Were you listing stuff? Were you doing anything else creative or was it just straight buying uh, from the agents? I'm asking because someone had mentioned like, oh, he's the short sell king and I didn't. Even yeah. Know. So we did. So what, what we did was um, the first thing we did was billboards. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a pretty good relationship with uh, the local Lamar, you know, it was like the VP of sales or something. So we got like a pretty sweet deal. We had like eight or 10 billboards that would run. And every time we would examine the results from that, we got more short sale and pre-foreclosure leads than we did anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get many high equity deals from billboards. Um, and each time we would go back and look at whether or not they were worth it, we would always trace it back to, hey, we bought 35, 40, 50 short sales last year. Um, we started a short sale company, um, saw some opportunity there. And then once it got to a you know uh, an operating level of 100 plus short sales in negotiations. Um, we were like, hey, this is a full-time gig. Um, I actually gave the business to the gentleman that still runs it and does mm-hmm. all of our negotiations. Um, but even today, we buy 45 to 50 short sales a year. Um, really? Negotiate probably. We only buy 25 or 30% of what we originate. Yeah. Um, so if you take that times four, that's that's how many leads that we originate with short sales and turn over to the negotiating team to, to handle. But we've always done really well with short sales. Um, at the peak, we were buying you know maybe 80 to 100 a year. Um, even as they cooled off across the country, we still had a significant amount of you know opportunity with short sales. I would bring it up, and people are like, "You still do those?" <laughs> you know, and I was like, "Well, yeah, I never knew they went away." Or, and, and I think that's in a lot of. I'm in a pretty small market. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked about some of the numbers today. I mean, in York, Pennsylvania, which is a you know suburb of, it's kind of halfway between Baltimore and, and Harrisburg, are probably the two bigger cities that people would know. Um, we have a population of 400,000 in that entire county, so it's small in comparison certainly to Phoenix or some of these larger uh, metro areas that, that people are doing business in. And um, you know, I, we, the short sale market has always been an opportunity. It's an, you know, it, Maybe it changed a little bit as it became more popular, which you see with mm-hmm. this, what went on in 2006. And what we're seeing right now is that you know, once it becomes a very lucrative opportunity, people gravitate towards it. So a lot of the competition that we're seeing now, for me, is much like what I saw in 2006 and 2007. So yeah. we're, we're kind of used to it. So you were, it was you and a partner. Yeah. And then you guys are – how many transactions were you guys doing at that time? I mean, it sounds like you guys just flew the out the first, gate. The first full year, I want to say we did like 70. Wow, that's The first full year. First so, like, year. yeah, I mean, we got started, I want to say it was like – we bought our first house maybe like April or May of 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so long ago now. I used to know the exact day. Um, and then so, you know, we went like seven or, or eight months that year. And then the next full year after that, I think we bought and sold about 70. Um, and then literally from like 2008 forever, we've done 200 plus deals. Um, wow. So, so how so, long go ahead. was it just you and your partner? 
doing that, those kinds of numbers. Quite a while. I think our first hire, she's actually with me now. She's my controller. We hired her as a project manager. Yeah. Uh, quickly found that that was not my strong suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we hired someone to basically drive around and check on the progress of renovations. Um, after that, we hired a salesperson. Um, we hired an acquisitions agent. And, I mean, today we have 42, 42 or 43 employees. That's crazy. Yeah. 42 employees. Mm-hmm. That's not stressful, though, all that overhead. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's pressure. I like to use pressure versus stress. Yeah. Um, there's a certain amount of pressure that comes along with, you know, particularly with COVID, not to get sidetracked. But, you know, when that happened in Pennsylvania, they shut down real estate. So I had 42 people that were looking to me like, hey, there's going to be layoffs or there going to be furloughs. And I remember, you know, the first couple of days. Uh, made the comment to my wife and I made the comment to, to some key people in leadership and was like, my whole goal is to get out of this without laying off a single person. Yeah. Cause you could just see the, sh- the real stress that was on people's minds about what was happening with their jobs. And, and, and it was, for me, it was a, it was a, a pivotal moment in my career that like everything that I'd done to this point should put me in a position to where I can, I can make it through this on behalf of our people. Right. Like yeah. it wasn't about me. Like we could, you know, been successful long enough and, you know, been wise enough with our money that we could sustain a two month, right? What was it was supposed to be sixty days to flatten the curve. It's been six months or seven months now. So at the time, I'm thinking, hey, we just need to get through this sixty days. And uh, I, I mean, I was worried. You know, what 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 was going to happen? Or you know, and I was I wasn't worried about it. I knew we would be fine. I was worried about the forty two people that worked for yeah. me. Were you able to make it through without? Yeah, it? yeah. We actually we hired um, half a dozen people between and Pens- <laughs> Yeah, I mean it was crazy because what happened was a lot of our competition and anticipation of what I was talking about this the other day. Like there's there, there's no explanation for what we're seeing in the real estate market mm-hmm. right now. Like all of the the circumstances you think would would lend itself to a, a correction or a crash, but the real estate market has responded the exact it's opposite way. Right? Yeah. So we started to see that in real time, and it was an opportunity for me. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about it as we get back to like the you know the, the transition from '06 to '08 was a lot like what we're in now. We just haven't got to '08 yet. Mm-hmm. Like we're still waiting on it. Yeah. But I I lived it right. I went through 2008, and we made some some key business decisions back then that I think were critical and allowed us to to, to not only survive but thrive through that. So when this started happening, it's okay. This is it. This is the drill. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I've we've we've prepared for this our entire like I've been since 2008. I've said hey if this ever happens again this is what you do. And um, as we started to do those things, I saw, you know, people were pulling out of advertising, they were doing all of these things. And, you know, um, I've always been a bit of a, you saw my profile, we looked at that today, right? I'm a little aggressive. And uh, (laughs) I was like, no, we're going to double down on advertising. And literally, we were paying, I don't know what the exact amount was like 75 to $100 per television spot. And the cost went down to like 25 or 30 bucks. Oh, we became like the go-to person where like local networks, they would call and say, Hey, someone just backed out of a $5,000 commitment for the month of April. We'll sell you these spots at a reduced price. And I was like, all right, well, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw obviously exponential growth. Like we picked up all that market share. Uh, now, of course, television ads are back to five times that amount. They're mm-hmm. a little bit more expensive, but it gave us what I would call like the proof of concept where we say, Hey man, television really works. Um, so I'm anxiously awaiting the, the, the election. So TV spots and commercials go back to normal prices mm-hmm. or some, something closer to what we experienced. But um, yeah, we made it through. We actually hired a half a dozen people. Um, we saw a considerable amount of, of growth and opportunity. 
Um, and uh, here we are today. So. I can't even imagine the cost of TV. I mean, seeing the election, this is going to be every time we have an election is like the biggest Dude. Uh, uh, election as far as campaign spend. Yeah, it's always the most important one, right? Yeah, well, campaign spend. and But they're spending so much money. And so with you on TV, it's going to be kind of hard to, to compete against that. Um, and I've actually had a friend. Uh, he was on the show before. And he said, like, you know, he had one November where he spent like 85000 Wow, and he brought in zero revenue, you know, just yeah. because they were getting drowned out by all the uh, all the uh, campaign spending. Yeah. So, what were some of your early struggles? I mean, it sounds like you kind of just flew out of the gate. No, nah, I mean, let's be honest. So, the early struggle was definitely renovations. Um, I mean, we bought properties off the MLS, but very few of them were good deals. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to, you know, literally, you know, bludgeon contractors to try and get, you know, renovation costs down to, to, to even leave a little bit of profit on the bone. So, I mean, we probably averaged, you know, single digits on our first 25 transactions, but that was the experience that, you know, helped position us as we continued into our second, third and fourth and fifth year um, that we knew better, made better decisions about what we bought. Um, you know, I think one of the, the, the bigger challenges we make is in the car business, you can literally buy, you know, a 300,000 mile car that's falling apart and bring it back and renovate it and, you know, run it through recon and, and make it a nice, decent car. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried that same approach with houses and, you know, you can't polish a turd. We tried to polish turds. That was probably one of the bigger mistakes we made. Yeah. It's just, you know, buying houses with you know, seven foot ceilings and non-conforming layouts. And <laughs> if it was cheap enough, we'd buy, we can, somebody's going to buy it. Um, I, one of the things we would always catch ourselves saying is, you know, if we just found the right buyer for this and like our second year, we were like, Hey, if, if, if we ever say that about a deal, let's just agree that it means we're not going to buy it. If one right. of us says, well, if we could just find the right buyer yeah, and um, we just, you know, we, we learned that lesson quickly because, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that, that we all do is when we get in this business, we, 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 we get drawn to a deal. Mm-hmm. Like we say, we want to do a certain amount of deals. Well, at the end of the day, we were talking about that before the show, right? It's like, who cares about how many deals you did? Like, what did you make? Yeah. Right. People get, they get, yeah, they get too tied up. There's guys in, 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 you know, in in different markets that do a fraction of the volume that I do and make twice the money, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because they they have bigger spreads or, you know, whatever the the case might be, or they just run a better business than than I do. So, um, but very early on, um, coming from the car business, like when you're the largest volume dealership, you get those bragging rights. Right. And then everybody just assumes that if I go to the largest dealership, I'll get the best price. Mm-hmm. So we, we sort of applied that thinking. Right. And if we're doing deals, we're making money. And it wasn't until about the third or fourth year. We're like, man, we're just running ragged to make eight, nine, ten, eleven thousand dollars on these deals. What if we got more selective? Mm-hmm. You know, what if we only did half as many deals, but made double the profit? Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> be and great. then we found that we could do that and still do volume. Yeah. Um, so we just got better about what we bought. Um, we got good at doing short sales. You know, when we started that, it wasn't it wasn't you know vastly popular, so people weren't fighting over those transactions. You got to think in two thousand six, people would gravitate towards pre foreclosure because to them it was a motivated seller that would be willing to part with equity because of the the obvious circumstances. They had equity, yeah, um, yeah. Lots of people had equity in two thousand six, and uh, but everybody that had no equity, like people would just throw those leads away. They wouldn't mm-hmm. do anything with it. And uh, that was one thing that I really learned from the car. We literally tried to to make something out of everything. Right. Um, 
we were the best at bad credit. So, you know, they were just really, really difficult deals to get funded. And um, they would always reduce your, your, your advance, right? Like, so if you're selling a $12,000 car, Back then, if you did a bad credit finance deal, the bank would only finance 10000 So you had to sell it at a reduced profit. Um, but we built a pretty significant bad credit car business. And, um, you know, we found that, like, it was the short sales were kind of the same, right? They were deals that people were throwing away. And you already paid for the lead. Yeah. Right? So, like, you can either do nothing with it or if you make half what you would make on a normal transaction, you would otherwise throw that deal away. So if you, even if you make seven, eight, ten thousand dollars um, but what we found was we were making double the money on short sales. Yeah. Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because there was no competition. I mean, our only competition was the bank. Yeah. Whatever they decided the value was through their appraisal process, their um, BPO process, this, you know, each bank has their different, you know, f- formulas that they use to arrive at what they're willing to sell it for during pre-foreclosure. Um, but we weren't competing against other offers. It's, you know, it was whatever the bank decided. And then, you know, depending on the product, they take 85 or 88% of whatever value is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just, we did really well with it. So one thing you were talking about earlier <clears throat> was your profile was not really meant to be a project manager. Correct. Not really a details person. The opposite, actually. <laughs> yeah. So you want to talk about how important profiling your your, your personality, you know, behavioral tendencies and so on and how that affects your yeah, business? Yes, so I'll nerd out a little bit on that. It's it's something that, um, you know, I've learned a lot about. I'd say in the last three years or so, we have a mutual friend, Gary, mm-hmm. and um, I invited Gary into our business about uh, three years ago, and um, we implemented EOS. And we had really just got to the point, you know, even three years ago, we had 20, 25 employees. And, um, you know, I, I was this essentially micromanager of our business. Every decision passed through me Sounds what like we bought nightmare. yeah what we bought i didn't know any different though right so it was it was my own nightmare i owned it i was happy with it or i you know i at least made it work and um what i found was is i i i tended to hire people like me mm. right so i would hire someone like me as project manager so i constantly had this turnover in project management right yeah. the only difference between me and them is they had to do it right i felt like as the owner or you know the partner at that point that um if i made a mistake it was a little bit more acceptable than someone that was supposed to be doing that job mm. at a high level. So we, we would constantly hire good people that would eventually fail or burn out. So one of the things that, that you know, we were introduced through through Gary with EOS was right person, right seat. So I, I had a lot of the right people, but I had them in the wrong seat and then I ended up burning those relationships. So I would have salespeople in project management positions and they would burn out after, you know, two or three years or so. And that's because they constantly had to modify their behavior to, to, to do what was required of them. So you had mentioned that we looked at my profile and I'm not detail oriented, right? So one of two Possibly things. Possibly not manageable. At all. So, um, so it's good I work for myself. But um, yeah, I mean, the only thing was is that, you know, I would find that one of two things would happen. I would either modify my behavior and mm-hmm. I was miserable. If I had to be too detail oriented, it would just crush me. Or I would gravitate towards my normal behavior, which is to not be organized. And I would have all these handshake deals with contractors, right? Like, well, Steve, didn't we agree that we were going to drywall the middle bedroom? And I'm confident, right, that that that's exactly what we discussed, but I don't have it documented. Mm -hmm. So now we have this confrontation and, you know, I may win the conversation or the negotiations about whether or not he does it and does it for free, but then I may burn that relationship, right? Um, So we quickly learned that, like, it wasn't just about hiring the right person. It was about hiring the right person 
person for the seat that they're going to sit in. Um, so we were introduced to behavioral profiling and, and, and testing that shows someone's normal tendencies and what they feel comfortable with. Um, and then we align that with the job description and what's required of that position. And it's, it's, I mean, I have, we still have turnover. I wish I could say that I didn't, but it's, it's minimal to this point. People are just generally happier in their jobs, including myself, because one of the things I realized with, uh, we use predictive index and my profile is one in which I'm I'm best suited to, to, to build big relationships, um, chase shiny objects, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's, that's actually in my job description as, as, as a visionary of our, our company. But when I was the decision maker and I was in charge of running actual departments that required organization, I failed miserably, yeah. um, which ultimately would fail the people that worked in that department. So I had to fire myself from literally five or six you know, different jobs and then staff those with the correct person. Um, and it's tough because you know if, if you're a detail-oriented person, I'm interviewing you and I'm not a detail-oriented, we, we naturally do not get along. Yeah. You're going to seem slow to me. <laughs> right? I'm going to go, what's taking you so long to make a decision? You're like, well, I don't have enough information. Yeah. I need like this much information to, to, to make a decision because I go with my instincts or mm-hmm. my, my intuition where someone that's better suited to be a project manager will wait until they get all of the data before they make a decision. Yeah. Um, so it was difficult um, until I learned the value of those positions and how important it was. Um, and now like we won't even engage in an interview until I have someone's profile. Right. And that's so critical. And for everyone that's listening, we're talking about uh, Gary Harper with Sharper Solutions. Yeah who's actually coming to my office in two months. I can't wait for that. Uh, so let's just jump into the numbers right here. We're yeah. talking about 375 investor side transactions, mm-hmm. which sounds astronomical. As someone pointed out, I didn't even think about it. It was obvious. Doing more than a deal a day. It is, yeah, <laughs> even on leap year, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I never thought of it that way. It's, um, but yeah, I mean, when we when we think about because we have KPIs and scorecards for each of our acquisitions and, and dispositions departments, and um, our goals are actually much more than that. We talked a lot about we have you know releases due to title issues and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we're we're finalizing more than a deal a day, but we're doing, you know, thirty to forty five acquisitions a month, mm-hmm. landing around the thirty to thirty five market. Uh, deals that actually stick and stay together for yeah. various reasons but yeah it's um it's got to be i mean for us i mean it's 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 funny like you know when i have these conversations and people are like wow that's a big number like for us i think we've just we've we i came from a high volume car dealership right we were selling um, across our new and used dealerships a thousand cars a month mm-hmm. so when we did 70 deals our first year we were like I mean, these are just small numbers, right? Because yeah. we came from the volume. Yeah, I was just like, so there was this constant push for volume. And then, you know, we made the decision about quality over quantity. But then we found that we were able to actually do both. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that 200 number has always been like a sort of a, you know, basement number for mm-hmm. us that anything below 200 for me would feel like a failure. So, but let's talk about because, I mean, there are people that they're struggling to get to, you know, their first deal or struggling to get to two right. days a month consistently there are a lot of things that have to happen to be doing a couple a moving day. parts yeah yeah so let's talk about all those moving parts okay or as many of them as we can let's do it all right so what's the first thing that you would give to tell someone like hey you know you want to get to doing 30 deals a month like here are the things you got to do so i you know in complete transparency um, just to, to add some perspective, so you know, we talked about less buying most of our deals off the MLS. Mm-hmm. About four and a half years ago, in my market, 
that started to change where it was harder to buy them. I had to pay more. You know, I, I started to transition back to like that 2006 feeling where these compressed margins. Um, that's when I reached out and ended up getting connected with Collective Genius. Mm-hmm. So about four and a half years ago, I was introduced to, to some advanced methods of direct to seller marketing. Um, and it's you know obviously had a huge impact. If we if we had not made that decision five years ago and relied still exclusively on on market MLS, so on market for us is you know um, any referral from an agent, um, uh, share of sales, tax sales, like anything where it's not direct to seller, right? Mm-hmm. So we would go to public auctions. I bought a ton of properties at public auction. Um, when we get into novations, when we talk about that, that's actually one of the areas where I apply it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, just the nature of the inventory that we find at public auctions are you know good bones. They get good solid bones. Owns. Uh, maybe the, the 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 purchase price and our max allowable offers ten to fifteen thousand dollars difference. Um, we found it very applicable in, in public auctions. Um, so that's where you know once those started to dry up. I mean, it went from being like one of ten buyers at a sheriff sale to one of a hundred. Like it went from being like you know sit wherever I'd roll in two minutes before the sale and you know sit down up front to like standing room only. And I was like. This can't be good, yeah. <laughs> right? This is not going to work out well for me. And we went from buying you know, maybe five or six properties every 60 days at the sheriff's sale to like scraping to maybe get one. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever worked the sheriff's sale, there's a considerable time commitment. You got to look at 45, 50 properties to maybe bid on 10 to hopefully get five. Mm-hmm. So we're spending all this time spending money on title searches and all this crap and buying one property. Um, and I saw that across everything that we were doing in the MLS and public auctions. It just it started to tighten up. So I looked for a solution, came across uh, the collective genius and the the long version of the answer to your question is it absolutely starts with identifying your market and getting really dialed in with lead gen. Yeah. Um, we talk a lot about you know acquisitions and sales skills and all of that stuff, um, but the reality is if you don't have anybody to talk to, you can be the best salesperson in the world. Mm-hmm. You can't close a vacant seat. Yeah. So you absolutely need to become great at marketing, um, and lead gen is the best. I think place to start. If I were to start over knowing what I know now, I would put 100% on my focus on acquisitions and marketing. Yeah. Um, I would become, you know, as best as I possibly can and maximize my dollar when it comes to, to, to marketing dollars and then become, you know, world class or, you know, I like to use that terminology when it comes because people use best or the best of my market or the top guy. Mm-hmm. For me, world class is like this elusive plateau that we should all uh, work towards gold gold medal olympian yeah that's world class so let's just say we pluck eric out yeah of of pennsylvania yes pluck him in the phoenix yes drop him in phoenix yes what are the top three marketing channels you would use to grow your so television's been extraordinary for us yeah um and and frankly we we tried it um I don't know. So, so somewhere between 2008 and 2018, we tried it and didn't do well with it. It was very expensive. Uh, so you know, your cost per lead was significant, and it's not very um, focused, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the great thing or what you pay for billboards and televisions, they, they talk about exposures. Um, how many people are watching your commercial? Yeah. Well, but like 1% of those people that are watching Judge Judy actually have a house with equity that I can buy, right? But they're charging me because there's a certain amount of eyeballs on that particular show. Um, But we've, we've found a great relationship with someone that manages our television. Um, and they've really dialed in uh, where our leads come from, the time of day, the program, the network. Uh, So we're able to make, you know, very uh, micro adjustments to, to, to that, um, budget on a weekly basis. So we're, I believe they're buying spots 
only five or seven days in advance. Mm-hmm. So we're taking the data from this week and seeing where we got our leads and then pivoting all of our advertising dollars towards that time frame or that network or that channel or whatever. Um, so we've had tremendous success with television, at least in our market. Uh, direct mail still works. I know for a lot of people, it's it's for us. Um, we're very targeted. We're fortunate to have access to you know some some really 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 good data and some um, you know predictive analytics that are mm-hmm. included in the list that we buy. Um, and then we we get extraordinary results out of cold calling and texting. It's super labor intensive. Yeah, um, we're constantly filling those seats. I've outsourced it. I've you know hired VAs. I only have success in my market with stateside virtual employees. So so by virtual, most people think you know VAs. They're they're yeah. outsourced out mm-hmm. of out of the country. But we have people that work virtually that you know live. Uh, one lives in Connecticut. Um, we have one that lives in in the South. Uh, I feel horrible that I don't know exactly where it is, but trust me, she she lives in the U.S. She's a, she's a great employee. Um, and if someone actually that lives in my hometown but just works from home, mm-hmm. um, and what we found is is that. Cold calling is just a grind mm-hmm. to begin with, right? Um, we really try and limit the amount of hours that they spend on the phone. And the ability to be able to work from home makes it less grueling. Like the fact that they don't have to drive to the office to do yeah. a, you know, a, a job that's thankless. You know, they literally get hung up on 99 and a half out of 100 mm-hmm. you know, phone calls. Um, but their ability to stay from home and then manage that schedule and be at home um, contributes to their production. It contributes to... Uh, the length of time they're able to stay in that job. Um, so those would be the, you said top three. For us, yeah. it's television, direct mail, um, and outbound cold calling and texting. Any tips for these guys for direct mailing? Um, measure everything. That's the one thing. We're constantly adjusting. Um, so I've changed my mail piece a hundred times. They're all the same. Literally. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's good, I think, to mix up your messaging a little bit uh, just to give somebody a unique look. Um, but it's really about we've we found the sweet spot for us is we mail um, we get fresh data every 90 days. Mm-hmm. So we're only mailing people that, you know, show up on uh, the spectrum of being motivated by, by our calculations. Um, and then we're mailing them every six weeks. We've done it every two weeks, every four weeks, every eight weeks. For us, the right frequency is every six weeks. Um, so they're getting, you know, two pieces of communication direct mail wise from us every quarter. Yeah. And then if they stay on the list, they'll continue to get it time and time again. Um, when we do direct mail and I buy new data, I always mail the fresh people first. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you were on last month's list or last quarter's list and you're on the list again, you get mailed second. I'm mailing the fresh data or the people that have just because timing's everything in this business. Right. Mm-hmm. So particularly when you're talking about a motivated and that's I told you you'd have to tell me to stay on track. So here's what I love about television. Everything about data and direct mail is about timing. Mm -hmm. So if you buy uh, a tax delinquent list, by the time you actually get the data, it could be what? 30 days old, 60 days old. Or longer. If you mail it out today, it takes, it's taken 18 days. We measure from from the time I sent out a postcard, it's 18 days until it hits somebody's mailbox. Really? Yeah. Wow. so there's, you know, the U.S. Postal Service is not at the top of their game right now. Yeah. And unfortunately, that has an impact on the results for mail, right? Because if you're mailing someone because they just showed up on a tax delinquent list or a mortgage delinquency or something about, you know, the predictive analytics data that we use, they're looking at like 100 different set of circumstances mm-hmm. that might change. Maybe they had a recent change in job. They applied for, you know, some relocation program or something. They're, they're, they're pulling all kinds of data from everywhere. So if we don't get that that postcard out for, you know, it takes a week for us to get the data, to send it to the mail house, it could be 25, 30 days. Yeah. Um, so we start with texting and calling. As soon as we get the data, we do 
do that first. Mail the new people first because timing is sensitive. Um, so those are a couple. You know, timing is is of critical nature at this point. Um, and obviously, you know, mail is expensive. I mean, by the time you buy the data, mail it, it, it could cost you forty five, fifty cents a record. Um, if you're doing it on a large scale, it's a considerable investment. Um, depending on the service that use the skip trace and text, they cost you between ten to fifteen cents per mm-hmm. record to communicate. Yeah. And all you're trying to do. So what I love about cold calling is in texting is people are like, well, I'm getting hung up on. Well, how many? What's a good response to direct mail? You know what it is. 0.8%. Okay, so like in what other like industry is 0.8% considered <laughs> successful? So like but we look at direct mail and we're like, "Oh man, I got one." So if you get 1%, which is about what we get, you're doing yeah. a good job. Yeah. So I told you you get hung up on 99 out of 100 times on cold calling, but that somehow is not considered acceptable, right? It's like, mm-hmm. "Well, I'm not going to do that because we're only getting a 1% response rate." It's very damaging to the ego. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, but here's the thing, like we do direct mail mm-hmm. just to get the phone call. Yeah, that's right? true. That's true. We don't. We don't get. We're not getting a one percent deal rate. We're mm-hmm. getting a one percent response rate. Yeah. So if I can text and call them for a third of the price and get that communication established, that's all I wanted. Right. We just mm-hmm. want the lead. We want the connection. We want the ability to be able to follow up with them. And you can get that through cold calling and texting. It's grueling. It's process oriented. It consisting is everything. Um, the good thing about direct mail is you can just mail. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't have to really be super involved. Um, if you just have a good relationship between your, your wherever you get your data in the mailhouse, it happens without you. Um, it takes a, a considerable amount of time and energy to manage cold calling and texting, but it's to me, it's well worth it. So, you mentioned like it almost didn't matter what you were sending, and Scott Oots has been on the show and he said the same thing. Um, stop overthinking it and just send anything, yeah, because it will work if you just do it. Um, so one question we're getting here is the um, the the data. I mean, like you're, you're you're relying on the data. So where are you pulling data from that says okay, these people are worthy of a direct mail? Piece? So we buy almost all of our data from a company called Audantic. Yeah, uh, you may know Chris Richter. Yeah, Chris Richter. He's in CG. So yeah, so he does this predictive modeling mm-hmm. that says you know um, I'll give you the third grade version of it because that's my understanding level mm-hmm. is he'll go back let's say 12 months and he'll look at all of the properties that sold in our market for you know let's say 70 percent or less of of whatever their market value calculation is and then they'll they'll look at each of those people in the circumstances or a snapshot of that particular person at the time that they sold age uh, were they non-owner occupant? Where, where was there? You know, um, you know, as much information. I remember how much information of ours is available now. Mm-hmm. Everything from credit score to you know, did they have two and a half kids? Did they have three autos? Like, were they married, single? Like, there, there's all a, these data points. Yeah, a ton. So then, what they do is they create an avatar of a motivated seller. Mm-hmm. Then what they do is they go into your market you know, on September 1st and say, show me all of these people that own real estate that fit this avatar. And then that's the list that I get. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's extraordinary the amount of data that goes into it to, to, to identify. And it takes a little bit. I mean, we would always guess, right? Like it's easy to say non-owner occupants are more motivated because they don't live there. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone that's on a a tax delinquency list or has utility shutoffs or these four or five things. The problem with that is, is it's such low hanging fruit that everybody's marketing and targeting that same demographic. This gets, a little bit more granular and it's probably you know before they show up on the tax list what are two or three things that happened 60 or 90 days before that because mm-hmm. you can do that through modeling you can say that you know 
60% or 80% of people that end up in foreclosure had these things that happened yeah, to the them. precursors. Yeah. yeah. So I, what I know to be true is that they're, they're actually getting into those precursors um, as far in advance as you possibly can. Um, so we're communicating with people at the earliest sign that there could be any level of you know, significant motivation. Um, so we, we, you know, we have tremendous success with, with direct mail. So that's marketing. You've got incredible salespeople. I, I argue every industry is sales and marketing. We talk, right? yeah, I agree. Every industry is sales and marketing. And then once you've kind of figured out sales and marketing, not that it's perfect, but it's more or less working. Yeah. Now everything else is systems and people. Correct. And I think that's probably the biggest thing. It's excruciating. That's helped you. <laughs> yes. Right? Because, yeah. um, you know, what, what we talk about, you know, your company's done, you know, 375 plus another 400 in the traditional side. And it all sounds great. But it's not you. Yeah. It's not you doing it, right? No, not at all. So let's talk about, we, we kind of touched on a little bit as far as the profiling goes, but let's talk about what it takes to lead an organization and how you make that all happen. Um, yeah. So, I mean, bottom line is I'll go back to, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I try and, you know, pay credit where credit is due. Like literally everything that I do is either modeled after or specific teachings that I've learned from someone else. So about three years ago, shortly after um, I joined CG and we got good at direct to sell and marketing. And, you know, then I was introduced to, to Gary Harper and we implemented EOS. Mm -hmm. And that's really when I started to get the understanding of how to be a leader and not a manager, right? Like Gary says something, I'll probably mess it up, but managers <laughs> manage um, processes, leaders develop people, mm -hmm. right? Um, and both are needed. At, at certain you know levels within the company, but as the owner, I really needed to to push myself to become less. And I, frankly, I was a little burned out. Yeah, you know, for me, you know, I, I still think it wasn't that long ago where I was calling leads at seven, eight o'clock at night, and it's because I hadn't spent the time to train and trust someone to do it on my behalf. We and you and I talked about this at breakfast this morning. We. We believe that we're always literally the best at everything, yeah. or at least I do. I'll take I'll, I'll take the blame for that, right? You <laughs> no, didn't we, say that. You nodded your head, but I, I said it. But we have these ideas. Yeah. So it was real. I never trusted anybody, mm -hmm. and so every decision had to pass through me. And you know it, that that wasn't. I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I just felt that it was the best thing to do to make the most out of a deal, make the most out of a, a, a marketing campaign, to make the most um, out of a, a, a property, right? Like I had to go walk the house before I'd sign off on a reno budget. Mm -hmm. I had to see the house before I would agree to what we would sell it for. Like maybe I'll, you know, see something that you didn't see and we'll get an extra $1,800 out of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best use of my time. <laughs> so I've learned otherwise. Um, but literally when Gary came on, we, we, you know, EOS teaches you basically how to put right people in the right seats. And then, um, one of uh, my uh, mentors along the way was a, a business coach that I had that talked a lot about what we call tribal knowledge. So I had all of this tribal knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And literally, I told you, like, the way that I used to train acquisitions agents, I was like, come on, just come follow me for 30 days and then just do what I do. Yeah, It doesn't work, right? It sticks for 30 days, but then they forget 88.5% of whatever it was that I taught them, but I didn't actually teach them anything. I just behaved a certain way and wanted them to emulate whatever I did. They heard the words. They didn't understand the science. Yeah. So we started to process map everything. We started to have, we, we have a, it's about the size of this television. So our accountability chart is about this big. Mm -hmm. If you can imagine with, you know, five 
core departments and then 42 employees, how that organizational and accountability chart looks. And I had to literally take everything out of my head and put it onto paper. And then I had to give people the opportunity to challenge why we did something a particular way. And it couldn't just be because that's the way we always did it or that's what Eric said. Mm -hmm. So we created this environment of what we talk about, which is agree and commit or disagree and commit or Mm -hmm. what, you know, Gary refers to or what I've learned to be healthy conflict. Yeah. So that whole development process was, you know, from the time that we implemented EOS to today of almost 100 percent turnover in leadership. Still had great people. Yeah. A lot of those people still work for me. They've just been repurposed and repositioned within mm-hmm. the company to a place that um, what we talk about is do, do you love it and are you great at it? Right. Right. If you're not great at it and you don't love it, someone else should be doing it. Because there's a person and a, and a profile yeah. that would actually love to be organized and be held accountable. There's somebody out there that loves spreadsheets. There's a, there's a king. There's a, there's a, my, my dad would say there's a ass for every seat, right? Yeah. And there is. Yeah. Um, so that's what I started to learn is, is, is that, um, through, um, you know, the, the addition of, of people and then empowering them through, um, process, mm-hmm. right? I didn't need to be engaged or involved in, like, I'm literally involved in like zero decisions today yeah um unless it's a you know a a big personnel decision or you know a a large investment that's outside of our normal uh you know core uh focus it's outside of your bread and butter yeah so i think that's it's important right so you got the the gwc right get it want it capable of it yes um and that part where everyone's allowed to challenge you Mm -hmm. not necessarily publicly Right. But you're allowed to disagree. Yes. And there's no ego here. And I think that's one of the big things about about traction. And ironically enough, you know, when we drove here, you were laughing like, I only have one thing in my trunk. And what is it? It's the book traction. Yeah. <laughs> it looks tiny in that big trunk. It's like, really? You have one thing back here? Um, but um, yeah, I, was, I thought that was kind of funny. So let's talk about all the, I don't know, you said the four or five key leaders so like let's talk about different organizations within to to make this whole engine run yeah get some key leaders key positions yes what are all those key positions or Uh, so i'll start like for me i operate from memory if you go from the left side it's really if you if you think about for us our accountability is set up for like the you know what's the life cycle of a lead or a deal look like right it starts at at marketing then Mm -hmm. it comes into lead management so these are all departments, marketing, lead management, acquisitions. Then for us, a deal could go back into lead management if we don't close it. Uh, we have our lead management department do about 80% of our follow-up. Then it goes into either dispositions, if we're going to wholesale it, or it comes into renovation, if it's a fix and flip or we do a considerable turnkey business. So if it goes into renovation, it goes into renovation. Then it either comes out and goes to property management, if it's a rental or a turnkey. Um, or comes back out and goes to dispositions, and then you have finance and HR that's involved throughout the entire life cycle of that, right? There's some accounting measure that needs to be made, whether we're uh, buying it, right, and we have to fund the purchase. Um, if we sell it or assign it, and there's income that comes in through the assignment of that contract, or if we close on it and we renovate it, there's accounting and bookkeeping that has to be done um, for the contractors, um, our lending relationships, draw schedules, all that kind of stuff. Um, so those are our key departments, marketing, acquisitions, lead management, uh, renovations, dispositions, property management, finance. Um, <laughs> so just a handful so, of people. Just a handful. All right. So let's talk about the 375 transactions. Yeah. You had broken down for me. I don't remember it, so I apologize. So we do roughly 125 to 150 wholesale transactions. We do about 75 novations, which 
oftentimes most people before we get in the explanation of is uh, is a whole tale Mm -hmm. right there's just a a different methodology of how to get to the deal Um, and then the rest of our business is fix and flip which is a small percentage Um, i mean 2006 through 2015 like 99 and a half percent of my business was fix and flip yeah Uh, it took its toll on me especially uh, you know so i'm renovating 250 homes a year yeah and I don't, and I'm not very good at renovating. <laughs> I was good at buying, got good at selling, never quite figured out the renovation game. Just that little meaty part. Yeah. yeah. And it's literally, you know, I tell people all the time, if they think about getting into wholesaling or fix and flip, I was like, listen, you, you have to understand what's required to run an effective renovation business, right? Because once you bring it into inventory, you're now a general contractor, mm-hmm. or at least to be able to operate as one. Yeah. So what made you great at marketing and acquiring the property does not make you good at managing. Just because you know how to pick out granite and the right color shutters does not make you qualified to manage a $70,000 renovation project. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it disqualifies you. Like yeah. If you're good at sales and marketing, you probably should have nothing to do with the <laughs> renovation portion of the, the deal. Um, so, yeah. So um, what was the number of flips last year? Um, total? Yeah. What, what do you mean? So, so, so it was 375. So we do between 125 and 150 wholesale transactions, mm-hmm. do about 75 or so wholesale novation deals. Um, and then this year we'll do about 150 or so um, turnkey deals. Got it. Um, and our, our, so we, 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 I think in 2019 it was like 100. This year we're on track to do between about 150 or so turnkeys. Got it. Um, so And just for real quick for people that don't know, what is turnkey? So basically, you've heard of the Burr method, right? Mm-hmm. Buy, renovate, rent, refinance. If you just take the last R and replace refinance with resell, mm-hmm. that's it. Okay. So we buy, we renovate, we rent, and then I resell. And then we sell it with property management in place. So basically, what you have is you know you have people that get into the wholesaling, fix and flip business typically have a, a, a considerably high risk threshold. Mm-hmm. They have an entrepreneurial spirit. They're comfortable with taking risk. And there's a huge portion of the population out there that wants to invest in real estate that does not have the same risk threshold that you and I have. Yeah. But they still want to get I mean everybody want I think wants to be in real estate just whether or not they can or are willing to to take that, you know, uh, leap of faith to go out and get the proper education so that they're not making mistakes with their money or somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sell predominantly to what we identify as high income W2 employees. Um, so their time commitment is, you know, focused on their, their, their primary job. Um, but our average turnkey uh, nets between 13 and 16% cash on cash ROI. Yeah. Uh, so our typical buyers are not cash, they're, they're leveraged, they're putting 20% down using a 30-year amortized product, uh, making 13 to 17% cash on cash returns. Got it. So in, in that 375, 75 are innovation. Correct. And just ballpark math, I'm guessing it's about a million in revenue. Uh, so seventy five transactions, at prop, yeah. So we're closer to twenty thousand dollars per transaction. So yeah. a million. What's that? A million, a million five? and a half. Yeah. So there's a million and a half in revenue you have right now. Yes. That everyone else would throw away. Most of it. Now some of the, So we talked about. Yes, I, I think a lot of those deals. Um, well, before I mean that's how I came to develop this process. Yeah. Um, was so. Let's go back to if you if you remember um, if you've been in the business long enough, you'll remember something called an FHA flip waiver. Mm-hmm. So what it meant was is that prior to this waiver, any FHA financing required the property to be seasoned for ninety one days before you could write a contract and an FHA buyer could purchase that property. Yep. So there was a flip waiver shortly after the market crash. 
uh, because there was a considerable amount of investment inventory where people were buying bank-owned properties and flipping them, and now 90% of loans were FHA, right? No mm-hmm. one could get a conventional mortgage anymore. Um, you know, they were doing 80, 20, 100%, and we, we had this huge reaction by lending institutions where they went from being ultra liberal and lending everybody money to like now you got to have an 809 credit score and 40 percent down countrywide was basically in the strip club yes just (laughs) making it rain yeah so now you know you flash forward to 2008 2009 like everybody's trying to learn fha Mm -hmm. loan officers that never did fha loans before trying to learn them they're like it's crazy right so that that i don't remember what it was around 2010 the FHA flip waiver was tied up in this congressional bill with like this other funding and it didn't get approved. And I'm sitting with my attorney. I'm like, dude, like I can't hold all this inventory for 91 days. Like what's up? Mm-hmm. And we started, you know, talking about how I could still make those deals and sell those deals without having, because if you write the contract on day 91 and it takes 45 or 60 days to close the loan, now it's a, that's 130 days where otherwise I was able to close maybe in 50 days. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, when you're doing 200 transactions and almost all of them are fix or flip, right? Mm-hmm. And 95% in our market, people were using FHA. So it was literally every deal. I'm like, I'm going to go from holding it for, for 60 days to holding it 160 days. Like, yeah. this is not good. Your whole time is more than doubling. And I, so now you think about how much cash commitment it takes, right? If you're doing 200 deals, that means you're doing around 15 to 20 a month, which for me meant I always had to have about three and a half months worth of inventory. So I had to be carrying 75 to 80 homes to do 20, where before it was you know literally two-thirds of that yeah and so we started looking at the amount of capital that would be required the interest expense like it 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 was significant and we ended up coming up with this novation strategy which the terminology novation just basically means replacement right Mm -hmm. so when i start explaining that to people i'm like you know you go a to b b to c which is probably common you know commonly Mm -hmm. understood with with most people that would listen and then you have basically a to c which is just like an assignment agreement that mm-hmm. literally every wholesaler in the world knows about, but you can't do that with a retail transaction, right? You can't assign your interest in a contract to an FHA buyer, right? Or even a conventional mortgage buyer. I, I don't know, you know, that 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 would be an approvable no, lenders don't line like that. item on the HUD because it mm-hmm. break, it's 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 there's interruption in the chain of title. They don't like that. Yeah, um, they can put plenty of fees on the HUD, but they won't let us as investors <laughs> put fees on us. So we came up with this novation agreement, which and, and and I don't want to get too deep off the bat, but basically what it does is extinguishes the A to B contract. Mm-hmm. So I'm buying Steve's house. I have a novation agreement in place in my original agreement that says, hey, Steve, if I happen to come, just like the assignment language, right? It says mm-hmm. if, I, if I assign my interest in this contract, um, it's permissible um, as, as written in our sales agreement. So we have the same language, except it uses the novation language. And what it means is if I find a third-party buyer, we can extinguish the A to B contract in exchange for the A to C. If I agreed to buy your house for 100 and I sell it for 140 I'm able to to benefit from the difference between the 100 and 140. If our contract was as is, cash, no contingencies, no inspections, and now this contract has inspections and contingencies, I get the $40,000 difference in price, but I also inherit all of the liability that comes along with it. Yeah. Um, so that essentially is a novation agreement, and what I was able to do is skip that whole seasoning yeah. process that was now required because anybody that was – so I, I, I stopped – taking deed to properties and then reselling them and started 
novating them to retail buyers at retail values. Yeah. So to, to simplify it, it's basically you're allowed to sell a property on the MLS to yeah. an FHA buyer. Any without, conventional finance buyer. Without actually owning it. Correct. Or taking title. Yeah. Yeah. In any capacity. Right. Um, so, yeah. So now what happened is we did that to, to, to you know, just do or continue doing our FHA business back then. But what I found was is when I started applying that thinking to each of my acquisitions appointments, um, you know, you got to imagine like, you know, the, the one of the values is A, being able to do that deal, right? Like now mm-hmm. I can sell it to an FHA buyer and not wait 120 days or 90 days. So, because often what would happen is the buyers would go, well, I'm not going to wait around. I don't want to wait 90 days. I'll just mm-hmm. go buy something else, right? Yep. There was plenty of inventory back then to choose from. So what I didn't want to do was lose that buyer. But once I started applying that and I would look at it, so I'd look at, you know, what's a wholesale price? What's a fix and flip price? What's a wholesale price? What's a novation price? Novation would always afford me the opportunity to spend an extra 10% on the deal because I was saving realistically 10% between the acquisitions cost, transfer tax, title insurance, um, you know, proration of taxes, all of that's any bank fees that would come along with it, plus the sales cost, right? I pay transfer tax when I buy and sell it. Oh. So if you buy a $100,000 house, if all you did was buy it for 100 and resell it the next day for 100, it cost you $2,000 just in transfer tax, right? Hmm. Assuming that you're only paying your 1%. In Pennsylvania, it's 1% buyer, 1% seller. So oftentimes, we advertise no fees, no commissions. We would pay both sides of transfer tax on the acquisition. So now it costs me $3,000. So that stuff starts to add up. So with the novation agreement, if you just eliminate your need to close on the property, you've eliminated between three dollars and $10,000 worth of fees. Yeah. That doesn't benefit the buyer, doesn't benefit the seller. It's taxes, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's... It's just wasted revenue that, that gets donated to, to the local and, and federal governments. So by in implementing this novation agreement, we found we were able to bring more properties into inventory by eliminating those costs, which the novation agreement, it's basically, it's wholesaling a property or assigning a property to a retail buyer right. at retail value. So, you know, when you're, when, when, for all our wholesalers out there, when you're looking at a deal, you know what your wholesale buyer is going to pay. And there's the max allowable offer that, limits what you can pay mm-hmm. and if you don't have the funds or want the to, to you know spend the money to pay for it you're done right if, if your max allowable offer is 90 because you can wholesale it for 100 and they want 100 what do you do shake hands you leave and you hope that they might be more flexible when you call right. them in a week yeah so this gives you the ability that now you have to start to look at because i think what what, what i lost sight of was as an investor i knew what wholesale value was and what renovated value was. That's the only that's the only world we live in. Mm-hmm. But there's this uh, uh, this whole other massive chunk of inventory that gets sold day in and day out that's not renovated and it's not selling for wholesale value and it's not selling for full retail value, right? It's selling for what we call wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, but for wholesalers, that's not a legitimate exit strategy. Yeah, you can't pay what they need. Yeah. yeah. So this novation agreement allows you to approach it as a wholesale deal because the only thing that's not wholesale about it is the price. Mm-hmm. But if you're still making the same, if not more revenue, you can call it whatever you want, right? It's essentially conceptually a wholesale deal because you didn't have to pay for it. You didn't have to take title. 
Yeah. Right. So to me, that was what it's done is it's opened up all of these. You know, we, we would instead of leaving appointments at a ninety thousand dollar figure and hoping that they would come down to our number, we're stretching a paying a hundred and then buying it, renovating and ended up making six thousand dollars on a hundred and forty thousand dollar investment. This was a great exit strategy for us that we sort of stumbled upon because of the, the expiration of the FHA flip waiver that allowed us to do all of these additional deals. And then here's yeah. the best part. like It most often uh, seems to apply to and has for 10 years to, de- to homes that are in better condition. Mm-hmm. Right, so I kept passing in all these deals that were in good shape. Right, people are like, what kind of house did you buy? I'm like, ones that are all messed up and nasty. <laughs> right, so like when you think about that, it's like, why am I? Why do I continue to pass on nice homes? Yeah. Right, because that's what would happen. You think about the majority of homes that you pass on that are ten or fifteen thousand dollars away, they end up getting listed, selling in the on the MLS for forty thousand dollars more than what you offered. The buyer or the seller's like, see, I told you. Right? right, I knew it was worth that amount, mm-hmm. but they would have gladly sold it to you for a hundred. It just it didn't match up with your fix and flip strategy. It didn't match up with your wholesale strategy, so you had to pass on it. This gives you a third layer or a filter to run those deals through, mm-hmm. where you can make. I talked to certain people that I've shared this with inside of CG. It's now fifty percent of their total revenue. Yeah, um, particularly in this market, right? Because everybody wants another twenty thousand dollars for their house today than they did three years ago yeah. because of the way that the market is. So basically, with innovation, you can pay more. For make the, the same, same house, yeah, but make the same, if not more, money. Yes, on the on the back end. Yes, and it's like, was it like seven percent more, eight percent? How much more can they pay? Or the whole typically ten percent is 10%. like. So for us, when we see it, you know, it allows me to pay one hundred and ten for a house that I would other otherwise want to pay a hundred, and it probably sells for one forty and as is condition. So when you net out commissions, mm-hmm. you know, maybe so, typically we're we're doing this with. Uh, inventory that would pass an FHA appraisal. Um, you're not going to get you know slammed on a home inspection. This doesn't work for you know dilapidated properties. It yeah. works for properties that, again, more than likely, if you're not buying them, they're selling on the MLS to a retail buyer yeah. for thirty to forty thousand dollars more than what your offer is, and the seller would gladly leave that thirty or forty thousand dollars in the deal, but you don't currently have an exit strategy in place to be able to make that deal happen. Yeah. Um, the novation agreement and the novation strategy allows you to capitalize on those deals. Yeah. Which for us is a it's a it's a large enough portion of our leads that we get. Well it's twenty percent. Yeah. It's a considerable amount. Yeah. So yeah. for again for everyone that's listening, so innovation, more or less, it's a way to wholetail the way I like to explain it, you, you can wholetail without actually owning the property. Yeah. Because the problem with wholesale typically means you buy it, you clean it up, right? You put it back on the market. Sometimes you don't do anything to it other than just getting the the people But there's still acquisition costs, there's holding costs, there's there's the funding. Real money that has to be spent. And depending on your situation, you know, you you may have not the best funding set up and you might be paying multiple points. And, you know, um, if if your interest rate's 10, 12, 14%, which, you know, sometimes with hard money it is, Mm -hmm. um, that chews away at that, $15,000 $15,000 profit that now becomes six or seven, and you're passing on those deals now where you could make $20,000 by just eliminating the need to take title. Yeah. And you can make, if you so choose, their mortgage payments if you negotiate it. Yeah. Either they can continue making the mortgage payments or you make the mortgage payments, but more, at the end of the day, you're not making hard money payments. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so I'm getting a lot of questions about the, the, the documents. Guys, if you guys want to get the documents, um, Eric's packaged all of it. You go to brewermethod.com. We can see those documents. Um, so let's now transition because the 375 investor deals is bonkers. Okay. And then you did 400 on the retail side as well. Yes. 
what does that look like? How does that happen? Man, so, you know, I told you we started in I mean, the, two, the, the, the first couple of years, we bought everything on market. So I needed – what I found was is that I, I'm calling agents trying to get them to show me properties at the drop of a hat. It mm. didn't work well. They didn't yeah. work with the same urgency that I did, right? Mm. I'm buying $60,000 bank-owned properties. They're walking away with $900. I'm trying to make twenty. I had a little bit more urgency. Um, so we just hired an agent. I was like, hey, why don't you work for me? I'll buy all of my stuff through you, mm-hmm. right? Um, or I'll pay you a salary. And I'm a cash buyer on every transaction. So we started to hire agents as our acquisitions people, um, which was a good fit because we did everything on market, right? So they just needed to know how to write a contract. They needed to know basic, you know, negotiating skills with a bank-owned agent, which is not much, right? Um, if, and you it was, them, if you can get them on the phone. Yeah, and it was it was a it was a night. And again, we would so a lot of times we were allowing the list agent to be dual agent because they would call us back. Mm-hmm. Um, so our agents weren't getting paid on commissions. We would pay them a, a flat fee for every house that they bought because the commission was being kept by the list agent um, because we just found that that was the best way to get a return phone call. Mm-hmm. So we started to, to to add agents to our team. I told you about how we were better at fizzboing our deals than we were acquiring them and renovating them. Um, so we started to hire salespeople and got them licensed as agents, right? So um, just from a compliance perspective, if you're working with buyers and all of that stuff, it just it was cleaner for us to, to have them be real estate agents and then um, represent us as the seller. And so we slowly started to accumulate agents that worked for us. Um, and then they were like, well, what happens if my friend calls me and wants to buy a house? So you can't sell it. You work for me. Yeah. Right. I don't want you out there. Running. What if I need you and you're out showing a house? That's bull crap. And that didn't go. I mean, it's over a period of time. We were you know, they were solely relying on us to make income. So if like if I didn't need to buy a house for a couple months because I had plenty of inventory, like they weren't making money or I was mm-hmm. paying them a salary without them producing. So we started to loosen up those restrictions and allowed them to sell stuff and we started to make money off of the commissions of buying and selling and them selling retail inventory and people then gravitated towards our culture and I didn't necessarily have a fit for them on our acquisitions team or our you know wholesale division or our turnkey so we basically started to use our retail buyer agent um, section of our business as a training or entry-level position if you wanted to get. So if you came to me and you want to be in acquisitions, first thing I'm going to tell you, I want you to become a buyer's agent and sell homes for a year. Once you learn how painful a retail transaction is, you will have a much greater appreciation for cash, right? Because you got things like appraisals and mortgage Mm -hmm. commitments and inspection contingencies and people that change their mind. Mm -hmm. Um, So once you can literally sit across from a seller and say, you know, one of the great things that we offer is, you know, just a streamlined process. And here's what you can compare it to. Like nobody knows, you know, like you go to different markets like in LA and you say cash, you're like, well, so is everybody else. Yeah. Right. In Pennsylvania, like cash transactions are a very small portion of, of, of really business retail wise through the yeah. MLS. It's, it's a very small percentage of, of transactions um, on anything over, you know, like a hundred over the median price in our market, which is about $170,000. It's low compared to, uh, you know, a national uh, median value. But uh, I mean, so yeah, for, we just started to accumulate real estate agents and, you know, decided to, to make it part of our business. And, uh, we have a team of uh, 10, 
I'm sorry, nine agents, um, 12 people in total. We have a ISA, Inside Sales Associate, Transaction Coordinator, um, then a listing um, consultant that helps agents, you know, get their pictures and MLS and all that mm-hmm. stuff so that they just can focus on meeting with buyers and sellers. And it just kind of happened. It was a... Are you feeding them predominantly? Or we do. Own? So one of the things we do is when we get deals in, which has been one of the things I talked about with television is that's not as targeted as direct mail. So we get a lot of leads from... Uh, motivated sellers, but not motivated to sell at a discount, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a difference between a motivated seller and a seller that's motivated and willing <laughs> to sell at a discount. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, if they just frankly are motivated and would gladly sell to us for a discount, but their payoff restricts them from doing so, mm-hmm. um, we'll schedule that appointment for the agent to attend um, rather than an acquisitions agent. We'll lead with an offer. So our agents still attend and make a cash offer, um, but if it doesn't work out, which we obviously anticipate not working out because of their equity position or what we discovered in the the original call, uh, they transition right into a listing presentation. So we do feed them a, a considerable amount, um, but then you do a really good job of of leveraging each of those listings to generate additional business off of that. Um, we're you know we run a team inside of Keller Williams, and Keller Williams is phenomenal when it comes to training about how to not just be an agent, but literally how to build a business. Yeah, um, I think Keller Williams is like one of the top voted one of the top training companies in the world, and they're a real estate company, which is yeah. kind of crazy, right? So. Um, yeah, Keller Williams has been a great fit for us. Um, they've taught us how to, you know, apply the same type of business strategies, marketing strategies, um, focus on, uh, you know, squeezing every ounce of opportunity out of the leads that you get, mm-hmm. um, and that we've seen that, you know, applied to our residential retail agency business, and it's it's been pretty phenomenal. <laughs> One of our guys saying that Steve wants to go to KW. All right, so... Is that true? No, absolutely no. not true. Um, proud of our brokerage. So let's see what how, what questions we got. Uh, some questions here. Uh, so how many markets is Eric in? So we talked... I consider it one market, but we're in seven counties. So those seven counties from my home offices, they're all within an hour drive. Yeah. So we're in... I think, see if I can get them all right. Uh, York, Adams, Cumberland, Dolphin, Franklin, Lancaster, six. There might be one that I'm missing in there. Um, so it's it's either six or seven counties, but we consider that to be one market. Yeah. So uh, Josh was asking who manages your TV ads. And Josh, um, you should know the answer to this question because you're in our coaching program. But anyway. Yeah, it's um, Bullseye Marketing. Yeah. So Joshua, have Matthew go onto our Facebook group and look up Darren Dammy. Yeah. Um, so we already talked about what lists, yellow letter. Um. We talked about that was authentic. Um, Who should be your first two hires on the retail side? Lead manager? Oh, retail side. Mm -hmm. ISA. uh, Inside sales agent. Yep, and a transaction coordinator. There you go. If you think about agents will gravitate towards you if you allow them to do what they're great at and they enjoy, and typically agents are great at prospecting and selling, mm-hmm. not the organizational side of the business. Not so the if I were an agent today and I wanted to look for a home or join a team, I would look for someone that would feed me leads, would would probably be a large portion of, of, of my decision-making process, but I would give an equal, if not greater amount of, of uh, influence towards, do I have to do any flipping paperwork? Yeah. If you have someone that does all of my paperwork, 
there's a good chance I'm going to come work for you because like I just it's it's hard for me and I'm I'm really bad at it. Yeah. So bonus points if you can get initials and signatures. Yeah. If for for missing documents or writing addendums as necessary. Yeah. So ISA and, and and a transaction coordinator, and I think you would find that agents will gravitate towards you at least good salespeople that are real estate agents. Um, if you talk about that that behavioral profile again. Mm-hmm. Someone that on the predictive index has a high A and a high B, low C and low D will just be an absolute mess with paperwork. Yeah. I have uh, a, someone in our office who always you know, complains, like, why are agents so sloppy? And I have to remind her about once a year. It's like, if agents were not sloppy, you wouldn't have a job. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. It's the same with project managers, right? When they tell me, like, this contractor sucks. I was like, well, if he was organized enough that he didn't need to be supervised, you wouldn't have a job. Because um, I've tried that. I've tried to let him go unsupervised. That doesn't work. Nope. Um, and I always say, you know, you can let me into a brokerage and I'll find. You can turn all the all the lights on, have everybody out of the office. You know how to identify the best salesperson? Mm-hmm. They're the messiest desk. Like, literally, (laughs) there's stuff everywhere, but he's probably got a pipeline full of deals that would choke you, right? So, like, that it's, it's, I think it's a good example of like what makes a great salesperson makes them completely unorganized. Now, you'll find a rare uh, profile where someone has, yeah, the unicorn, um, where someone's organized and has the, you know, the the behavioral traits of of a salesperson, but more often than not, the person that's a great salesperson will not be organized. So I believe whether you're building a brokerage business, an acquisitions business, a wholesale business, dispositions, whatever it is, keep the 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 administrative work out of the hands of salespeople. Even if they do it, they're going to be bad, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. and then all you're doing is just crushing their dreams. Like your buddy when he left here, you called him the dream crusher. <laughs> if I'm a salesperson, you tell me I got to do administrative work. That is crushing my dreams. Well, it's it's, it's grading. It's exhausting. Yes, you'll do it. But you're not going to stick around. I'm going to complain about it the entire time. Yep. It's um, like my kids. Yeah. Um, so Robbie wants to know where you can find the innovation agreement. Robbie, go to brewermethod.com, uh, and Eric and I are going to be holding monthly calls where we're going to go over not just innovation agreements and the documents, but also case studies and how to, how to work it. But Warner has a question. How do you present an innovation agreement? So here's the thing. I always I present it with every single contract. So when that was I one of my st- takeaways from our last meeting. What's that? How did how you present it? Innovation in every contract. Yeah. So here's the thing. Like what happens is if, if you start at a, at a price of you know, and if you're depending on how you manage your nego- negotiations, Steve and I will call it an anchor, right? Mm-hmm. Like wh- wherever we start negotiations. So anytime I move off of that number, I'll ask for concessions. For me, it lends credibility to your original offer. It's like, did you ever wonder like if you start at seventy and you land at ninety, isn't there a part of that seller that's going to go? Steve, did you try and get over on me for 20 Gs or what yeah. just happened here, right? right? I'm glad that you came to 90, but I kind of feel like you tried to rip me off. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing. Yeah, right? what did you have to give up where it made sense? Otherwise, you were ripping me yeah. off. Yeah, so anytime I move off of an anchor, I'll propose what we call terms. So at the end of the day, what you have to get the seller to agree to is terms. Will you allow me reasonable access? So it might sound something like, and I don't want to get into sales training here, but like presenting it, right? Because that's the question, is I'll say, hey, Steve, it sounds like, you know, ultimately for you, um, time's not near as important maybe as getting maximum amount of money for the, the house. Um, you know, I really think that the $70,000 number, we, we kind of looked over some comps and we talked about it and you understand how that number makes sense for me as an investor. Um, but ultimately it's your decision, right? It doesn't matter how much I believe in the price. If you don't like it, it's just not going to work. Right. And, you know, I would be able to close in a short time frame. It would be completely as is, you know, we could button this thing up and, and it would be easily the, 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 the least hassle-free transaction you'd have ever seen. 
But if I hear you correctly, you might be willing to, to go through maybe just a little bit of hassle if it means getting more money. Mm-hmm. You're gonna, That's correct. Okay, so like, would it be okay if I make a suggestion? Please. I think I could maybe get you closer to that price that you're looking for if you would work with me a little bit on what I call terms. Terms are like, you know, um, let's say if we didn't close in seven days and it sounds like you're not in a huge hurry, you might actually prefer closer to like 60 days. Yeah. Is that okay? If I get my 90. Yeah, I get it. Um, And, you know, it sounds like you got a lot to get done between the time that, you know, now and and when you move, you got to find a new place you shared with me. Like you got lots, you got 30 years worth of belongings here you need to get packed up. So it might even help you if it was 60 days versus seven days. So I'm happy to hear that because we can, we can work with either one. Um, So ultimately what, what I would think is that, you know, if I buy it, renovate it and sell it, I mean, I literally have to be at the seventy thousand. Is you know, unless I think I can sell it for twenty thousand dollars more, which I, I don't think I can. You and I kind of talked about it's worth you know one hundred and seventy thousand dollars fixed up. I don't think it's worth one ninety. But you know, if I were able to you know sell it potentially to, to to someone for just a little bit more than the ninety that I'm paying you, and I didn't have to close on it, I didn't have to pay out a full you know realtor commission, and have to pay my bank to to, to lend me the money. Um, that would allow me to be more flexible. So, you know, if I was able to save ten or twenty thousand dollars in the transaction, and I could pass those savings on to you, I mean, is that something you'd be open to talking about? Yeah, I'd be open to that. So, if you get the ninety, let's say, hey, Eric, as long as it's a you know it's a, a legitimate transaction and you don't change the deal up on me completely, that's that's something we might be able to agree on. And then basically just talking about, hey, like ultimately what I want to do is I want to market. You got to be completely transparent with them, right? Because mm-hmm. what you don't want to do is dilute what you're actually going to expect of them. And then three days in, you got fifteen showings, and they're like, hey, bro, like we didn't talk about this. Like, what's this all about? Yeah. So, but the bottom line is they're conceding that they will give up some flexibility with terms to get the higher price. That's ultimately what they're going to do if they list it, mm-hmm. right? And the other part is, is I'll go through that, and the person will sit across me and go, I don't like that. Let's just stick with the 70. Hmm. So like people like options, right? So the one thing I realized is when we started presenting Novation, so we anytime I move off of a number I propose, that doesn't mean people are going to say yes. But if they do, why not have that luxury, right? So right. what I've realized is that let's say you buy it at 70 anyway, or you buy it at 72, and they gave you right authorization for terms and access. Mm-hmm. Now what can you do? You got a lot more options. You can list it on the MLS. Yep. You can sell it to a retail buyer, right? Where we're always as wholesalers, we're trying to, to walk this slippery slope of an open house, and I'm going to bring by my contractor. And, you know, there's all this kind of gray area that, that sometimes we, you know, operate in as, as wholesalers mm-hmm. to get us access. Because no matter how great of a deal we have, like our buyer wants to see the house. Yeah. And we're always kind of dodgy about how we explain that to the my seller. My partner, my financer. Dude, I'm going to need to bring a buyer through here to get you 90. Is that cool? Mm-hmm. I might need to bring 10. I just need one of them to say yes. So I need a little flexibility for I'm going to put a sign up. I'm going to list it on Zillow. I'm going to list it on the MLS. But that's the only way I can get you 90, bro. And mm-hmm. then people go, well, what? why don't they just list it? Because they want to deal with you. If you're handling the appointment right, they, they don't want you to leave without a solution. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this today, right? I mean, I gotta, gotta, I'm going to bring four more people out here. I got to tell them my whole life story. They're going to ask why my wife left me, right? I got to get into that whole story. Mm-hmm. And then they might not pay 90 for it anyway. I really like Steve. And all he's asking for is for me to allow a little flexibility with showings. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. If I get my 90, like you said, right, then I'll do it. So it's all about and everything we teach and, and talk about with our acquisitions agents. is all about transparent and setting the proper expectations. So 
you know, one of the things we can do in our monthly calls is spend some time on, because it is different, but I would tell you it's much like what you're proposing to your sellers when you lock up a wholesale deal and you need to have access to bring 13, 14 cash buyers through. You're just setting expectations. This is no different. Um, So as long as you're clear about what your expectations are, and then we propose innovation literally every time I move in price. And if I get if I get the, the, the authorization for access, which you really need to be able to no-fate, you really just need access, mm-hmm. right, to be able to show it to conventional buyers. You need to list it in the MLS, put it in showing time, and you need to have, you know, and we'll talk about, like, hey, if, you know, would, would 24 hours notice be, you know, reasonable for you? Um, so you got to manage it on the other side. You just can't have, you can't blitz them if it's occupied now if it's vacant it's no big deal they don't care about access it doesn't affect them at all um sometimes we'll do um so we i'm big on programs right like anytime i give up something i like to to give it a name so we'll call it the utility liability program you know steve it sounds like one of the bigger concerns for you is like closing in 90 days isn't a big deal but you have taxes what if we started the prorations from today Right, so when we get the settlement, you get your tax prorations. Mm-hmm. What if we took over taking care of the lawn? Seems like that's a really big concern of yours. Um, you're spending your free time between work and kids and all that stuff over here mowing the grass for two hours a week. That's no fun. So we'll 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 give them you know the the liability utility program, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, cash for keys, we'll call it. Right, like it's a pretty common term. If you you know sometimes we'll give them a small deposit up front, particularly if I know it's a great deal. Hey, what if I could advance you fifteen hundred dollars out of your net proceeds that you would get at settlement? Would that help you with some of the moving? expenses or the deposit that you need on your next home yeah yeah yeah, that would be cool so you gotta you gotta be a deal engineer right like it's Mm -hmm. not just this one thing where you go novation and they go all right deal (laughs) like you gotta you gotta know how to present it Um, but that's the great thing about you know i think what you and i are doing is we'll have the ability to explain it we'll have the ability to do some centered training around how to present it Um, but it's no different than anything else right it's the same as getting access to be able to wholesale it it's the same as everything the hard part's buying the house at a discount Right, like that's literally the hardest thing in the world to do is get someone to sell you a hundred thousand dollar house for forty thousand dollars. Right, it's pretty hard, right? Well, I mean, that's there's a whole industry. Yeah, we train on that. Yeah, um, it's hard. So Josh wants to know how are you financing the innovation? You don't finance it. That's the whole beautiful part about it. Same way you finance a wholesale deal, mm-hmm. you don't. <laughs> right? No, you don't. No, that's no, the, that's it's, the beauty of it. It's taken care of. Uh, let's see what else is there. Um, what are your thoughts on agents and investors working closely together? That's funny because we were talking about that you gotta this morning. you got to do it. It's Yeah, I mean, so I, I, maybe that's a, a topic for another day. But literally, Steve and I were, were talking earlier today. If you put 100 people in a room and you send them an investor postcard, right? Mm-hmm. And you send a real estate agent postcard and they had similar messaging. If I told you that it was... 60 of the people called one person back, 40 of the people called the other person back. Who do you think this, the, the larger portion of the people called? Realtor. Yeah, why? Credibility. Mm-hmm. We don't have the best reputation as real estate investors and wholesalers. And there's a, an assumed credibility that comes along with being a real estate agent. So I think, and, and hopefully I can figure it out, is if you can perfect the messaging to our same database, like I would love to send a postcard that comes from my agency team and goes to my my wholesale acquisition team, and then all I want is the lead. Mm-hmm. Once I get the phone call, we'll dig into motivation. What do you do now? You take a lead from your acquisitions business and you refer it to the retail team because of their motivation and their equity position. Why can't it go the other way? Right. Particularly if a larger portion of those people are going to call an agent, but they still want to sell at a discount. They just like the assumed credibility that comes along with listening with an agent. I'm going to sell it for 100 right? Mm-hmm. 
if that's the number, I'm okay with it. I know I know my house needs some work and I want to sell quickly, so I might have to be flexible in price. If an agent tells me that's what it's worth, it's more believable than, than if Steve Trang or Eric Brewer tells me mm-hmm. because you're an investor and your job is to buy my house cheap. Yeah. Well, I like what you said uh, earlier was that t- some of the problems you have where they need to talk to their son or their daughter, Yeah. it's because that it's not a regulated. It's non-conventional. It's yeah. non-conforming, right? But if you talk um, to a realtor, it's like, it's all good. That works with normal. Remax. Yeah, works. <laughs> he works at Remax, right? It's got to right. be a legit deal. And 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 again, I think there's a portion of that that's that's legitimate. Right. That's a legitimate concern of a potential seller, and um, I get it. So we can either fight about it, right? We can slug it out with agents and continue to fight. But I told you what happened, right? So we we're, we're big on analytics, and all Danik gives us a report, and we were at like thirty percent of off market transactions over the course of one quarter. And as I was talking to, to Chris, he's like, dude, like, that's a big number. Like, for it's you to have 30%. So I didn't, I'm like, okay, so what are you trying to tell me? He's like, don't plan on it always being that. Yeah. Well, that kind of sucked. <laughs> right? So I'm like, so I got 30% of, of 300 deals, right, in a quarter. But then he shows me this other batch of deals, and I'm like, well, what's this? What's what's this big number over here? Like, who's got this market share? He goes, oh, those are deals that sold at a discount on the MLS. So I'm like, well, okay, well, how many of those? Well, 1,200. So in one quarter in our six counties, or seven counties, I apologize. It's one of the two, I promise you. (laughs) But there was 1,200 transactions on the retail side at a discount. Now, maybe it wasn't, you know a deep discount, but it was a discount by whatever measurement they use. They're motivated. Yeah. And literally, that person got 6% less in their pocket than they would have if they sold to me. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, if there's 1,200 transactions and I got just 10% of that market share, it's equal to 30% of the smaller piece of pie that I'm fighting for with every investor in the world. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's that we developed a tool. I presented on it at, at CG. It's basically, it takes all of our off-market data and scrubs it across the MLS. Mm-hmm. So if I have a motivated seller and it lists in the MLS, we know the first day that it goes active. Mm-hmm. And then we go out and make an offer on it. So you might look at that and go, well, it's not on my radar because it's priced at retail. But we talked about this. Like, how often do real estate agents actually know the level of motivation with their seller? Not enough. Nah, We've enough bought questions. plenty of homes, right, from homes that were listed for 250 and we bought them for 200 and the agent's like, well, I didn't know they were that motivated because well, you didn't ask. But what we teach and what we do is we have to talk about that motivation. It's mm-hmm. the only way that we can really solve their problem. And it's the only way that they're going to justify selling to us at a discount is because we're able to solve their problem. So we have to right. talk about it. I think so often agents, you know, avoid those difficult conversations, which is understandable. They're they're difficult, right? This is what we try and avoid. I try and avoid difficult yeah. conversations unless I'm getting paid for them. So, um, I, I mean, I... I there is no secret that there's plenty of deals out there that originate through real estate agents. So I would tell you the relationship between you as an investor and a real estate agent is significant enough that you should spend time developing those relationships. Absolutely. And I think that's a great, great point. Um, Ryan Berry wants to know what percentage of acquisitions are over the phone versus in person? Uh, very small. So in COVID in Pennsylvania, uh, we were, you know, if you're not familiar with Pennsylvania's restrictions during uh, COVID, it was probably the most rigid, if not, you know, by a, a large landslide. Um, so we pivoted to prior to COVID, zero. I bought nothing over the phone. Everything was in person. Um, during COVID, it was 95 percent 
there were very small exceptions where mm. we would physically we couldn't go to the house. Um, so if it was vacant, we might go, um, but everything that was occupied, we we weren't permitted um, and weren't willing to to you know um, do in person appointments. So from about what end of March through June fifteenth, or mm. I can't remember when king wolf let us off the hook um where we could go back to to going outside again um but we moved back to in-person appointments today because now we learned how to buy over the phone um i think it's a great strategy our people um and i mean not our acquisitions agents i think our sellers haven't made the transition like they don't trust what they can't see Mm -hmm. so and our demographic typically like our, our ideal sellers over the age of 65 yeah they're the largest portion of the population that gets scammed, right? Like they have people from Nigeria that want to sell them a couch for 1200 bucks or something, right? Like they're constantly, um, you know, they, they, they're, they're being exploited with, with the you know, contractors. You see it on the news, right? Like all the time, it's like yeah. little Miss Maddie got taken advantage of by a contractor that charged her for a job and never came back to put her mm-hmm. ramp in or whatever. Um, so, you know, understandably, they're super skeptical. So while our people started to make the adjustment, I felt like our sellers weren't willing to make the adjustment. They were asking us to come out, and we're like, "Hey, we can't." Um, and they said, "Well, let's let's revisit it. You know, when when you're able to come out to the house, like we could give them a number, and they didn't believe it. Like yeah. say, oh, no, Steve, I'll give you ninety. Like based on the conversation we had, I'm willing to commit. And they weren't. Right. Um, so we made the transition to to go virtual. Um, did a pretty good job of it. It was it was a tough spot for our, our agents to be in because we never did it. Um, we talked a little bit about like the energy of salespeople and how they benefit from being in a in an environment, and they really like. I love to be. They need to engage. They yeah, need to be I need to be you know belly to belly at the kitchen table. It's um, I can do a fair amount over the phone, but like I, I feel more comfortable in person. Yeah, um, Eric was so, laughing at me when we were at Starbucks because the. He was too nice. Steve said this guy's too nice. I didn't know you could have somebody too nice. And that was the experience. I was very uncomfortable. He was nice. And he got you with the laser tag comment when he did your phone. Overly, overly. I think he won you over when he did the laser tag. Overly enthusiastic. Uh, So Warner has a follow-up question. Is this not kind of like a net listing? Yeah, except net listings, I think, are illegal. Net listings are illegal. Yeah. So that's the cool part about this. It's legal. Yeah, <laughs> but it but it essentially is right. Like a net listing would say, "Hey, you're cool with us listing it as long as you net a hundred thousand, and the agent could charge a forty thousand dollar commission." Mm-hmm. Uh, for obvious reasons, right? As an agency, it was hard for that to be justified as a, a reasonable commission. Right. Um, and people are like, "Well, why are they?" Because I'm taking on like, the important part is you're taking on all the risk of selling that FHA buyer, a disclosure liabilities, finance contingencies. Um, I mean, everything that you look at that comes along with an FHA transaction versus uh, an as-is contract, all of those contingencies are your responsibility. So when you look at that, because I've been doing this for 10 years, I've had these novation agreements reviewed, approved by hundreds of estate attorneys, real estate agents, um, you know, uh, the local governing real estate body that that oversees all of our agents. Um and they literally can justify, you know, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of profit because of all the responsibility that we're taking. Yeah. We're allowing them to enjoy the benefits of an as is transaction, right? With mm-hmm. no contingencies. We're taking on all of this responsibility. Which right. sometimes just means that like, we talked about this, right? Like, why is it worth forty thousand dollars more? Because it's not being marketed as is and you're allowing an FHA buyer to buy it. Mm-hmm. 
you're you, going to be responsible for making the repairs. Yeah, and there might not be any, but the uncertainty of that right. is worth peace of mind, and peace of mind has a dollar value to it, and it's different for each person. But literally, by just being willing, like we talked about that, right? Like the transactional side of our businesses painful mortgage Mm -hmm. commitments right like appraisals home inspections like we're willingly taking on that excruciating responsibility on behalf of the seller and that is what affords us the opportunity to make that that net profit difference between what we paid and what we sell it for the inspector comes by you make the repairs yeah and then the appraiser comes by and you have to make more repairs. Yeah. It's just And then they come back to reinspect the appraisal repairs that they gave you on Tuesday and then they find three other ones. I've yeah. had that happen a number of times. Oh so. yeah. yeah. Aggravating. So, guys, if you guys want to check out the novation agreements, uh, go to brewermethod.com like I said, we're going to do a monthly call going over case studies, how to present it and solving these problems for you guys and then um, just real quick, I want to just give how did we meet? Uh, collective genius. Yeah. So you know, just, just a, a couple months ago, just a shout out to Jason Medley, yeah, what, what, absolutely, uh, Leon, Frank, Bailey, Jessica, what they've done over there, it's been absolutely incredible. So, um, you know, I'm not necessarily plugging Collective Genius, I am kind of, but you got to find people that you guys want to network and, and 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 connect with because what you guys can accomplish and do, it's very much related to who you know. Like literally, as you go back and I talk about like the pivotal points of my business, where like so. The biggest one in the last 24 months has been um, learning turnkey, implementing it, and continuing to, to, to this pursuit of becoming world class when it comes to everything that's that's related to work. Because, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a pretty well-kept secret in the real estate investment business, right? Like there's this huge focus and a ton of activity in wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, the fix and flip business is, is predictable. And as the market is heated up, there's tons of people. Um, my buddy calls them Chuck in a truck, right? Like a Chuck <laughs> with a pickup truck can buy a house, uses HELOC and make 30 grand a deal, mm-hmm. right? Then do it twice a year. And it's just, he can either quit his job or it's this great ancillary income. This whole turnkey segment, I didn't even know existed until I was in Collective Genius. And I kept going back and I'm like, man, I'm trying to, working hard to get these deals. And, you know, I'm, I'm selling them at the, this and I'm, I'm, I'm renovating it like this. And these guys kept saying, well, they're doing 100, 200, 300. I don't know if you ever heard of Memphis Invest. They do like oh, yeah. 1,500 turnkey transactions a year. So I started to look at it. And as our, you know, direct to seller became more competitive, as the, 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 the market just heated up, it was not, you know, it's great when it comes to selling but it becomes harder to buy. Mm-hmm. So that's what's cyclical about our markets, right? When it's when it's easy to buy, it's hard to sell. When it's hard to buy, it's easy to sell. Mm-hmm. Need, like both of those, like I wish they would happen at the same time. <laughs> I'd be retired by now. But so like as the, the, the market pivots, our focus does as well. Like when the market is hot, we spend more time focusing on buying. When the market cools down, there's less competition. Deals are easier to come by. But now we shift and pivot all of our focus towards selling. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally anybody can sell a house today, right? Like you just if it's reasonably priced and the door's unlocked, like it'll sell. The the term that my um, someone I, I follow for... The market d- uh, data, she says, is, is um, dump your junk season. Yeah, get rid of it. Yeah. If you ever wanted to sell something and you owed a little too much or it just wasn't in sellable condition, now is the time to get rid of it. Now is the time. It's pretty crazy. So I'm going to make a few quick announcements, and then I'll let you think about last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with. Okay. All right. So, guys, if you get value today, which I think Eric provided a ton and ton of value, uh, please like this, comment, subscribe, share. All these things, if you can do it, it helps us because that's what the algorithm requires. Uh, and again, if you guys want to check out 
the Novation Agreements, go to brewermethod.com. And then we got Dan Bro coming next week, and he's going to talk about how he went from, in just a few short months, how he went from struggling in his wholesaling business to quitting his job and now doing six figures monthly. Again, less than six months. If you guys want to find out about that, tune in next week. Last thoughts. Yeah, so I think, you know, if I were trying to, to summarize uh, the last 15 years or so that I've been in business, if I could go back and do one thing differently, it would be to network and invest in the education portion of, of, of how I invest my time and pull away even from a little bit of the execution part of the business. Yeah. Um, we've had, you know, we were at 200 deals for 10 years, fifth, 10 years. Um, we've been at 300 plus for two. And the biggest difference has been I made an investment in education and networking, um, thinking and, 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 and operating outside of my own little market and my own little world. Um, and again, that's how I learned about turnkey. That's how I learned about, you know, advanced methodologies of, well, it's not super advanced, but television and direct mail, mm. but you can be, you can do direct mail and be bad at it. Yeah. You can do television and be bad at it. You can do acquisitions and not be a great salesperson. Um, and literally from this connection to Gary, to, to, to people that have helped modeled my acquisitions, marketing portions of my business all came from this this desire to go out and learn, even if it meant pulling away from going out to look at homes or going to appointments or, you know, cold calling. Like when I really started to gain traction, not the the, the ploy or the, the play on the words about the book in the trunk, which is still funny, but um, it was it was when I started to leverage my time, invest in education, and I had to pull myself out of certain processes and then plugged people in and found that even if they do it at 70% of what you think you or I can do, if they like it, love it, and they're really good at it, and they do it more consistent than I do, and I'm now invested in you know developing new relationships or learning, um, the, the leverage of those two things combined was much better than me doing every single thing in the business that I thought I was great at, and it turns out half of it I really stunk at. Yeah. So that would be, I, again, if I could go back and the, the, I would have invested more time in education and made it a, a, a religious part, like listening to things like this, yeah, right? Um, just, you know, the, the, to, to be able to have access to information like you share here, um, I think is extraordinary. Someone or a lot of people, I think, are going to take what we talked about today. If they just did one thing and implemented this novation strategy, it can be the difference between a struggling wholesale business and a struggling investment business. And if you just did two more deals per month, Right, it's, life changing. It's half a million dollars in revenue if you're yeah. doing it correctly, um, which can be. And, and one thing it is, it gives you a competitive advantage because literally no one's using it. Right. Yeah. So if you're the person in your market, or you're one of the few people in your market that understand it and commits to, to, to the discipline of implementing it, you have a competitive advantage, which you need right now because it's uber competitive. Yeah. So if you don't have an advantage, you're just counting on luck. Right, like I hope I'm the first person or the last person there, and they don't want to shop around to ten different investors. But that's not the case in, yeah. in, in most situations. So um, that would be my final thoughts. If you could do anything, invest or at least allocate um, a consistent amount of your time to pull away from actually being in your business and work on your business. And I know it sounds cliche, but there's a reason why that's been around and it's still an effective suggestion, is because it works. Absolutely. So, and if someone wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, you can go. We're on Facebook, Integrity First Home Buyers. 
Um, Eric at integrityfirsthomebuyers.com is my email. Again, we're on Facebook. You can go to CR Property Group uh, or Integrity First Home Buyers. We're pretty active on Facebook. So um, I do a lot of, we talked about it like morning. I share a lot of what we're talking about on morning drives about leadership and business and sales and marketing. Um, So I think I'm a relatively fun follow. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's entertaining. I, you know, I do some quirky little funny stuff on there as well so actually is it too late for them to go vote for your, your son um what time is, i mean it's six o'clock we can it might be i don't know we'll, we'll post it on there um if it's too late no big deal uh, so go to eric's facebook page yes and go click to vote for his son yeah he's up for player of the week uh in our local um uh, it's Y-A-I-A-A. Uh, he had a big game. They knocked off an undefeated team. He had 280. Oh. Yeah. Um, they knocked off an otherwise, which in this shortened season in Pennsylvania, we went from a 12-game schedule to a six-game schedule. If you're not undefeated, you won't make it to the playoffs. Mm. So by us knocking off that team, we, we snatched their soul, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we were dream crushers for a night. Um, so it was a big uh, – we're a relatively young team. My, my son's a junior. Um, he took over the second half of, of the season last year as the starter. Uh, so he's worked really, really hard in the offseason. And uh, he had a good game. He got nominated for Player of the Week. So if you go to my Facebook page, you can click on the link and vote for it. Uh, any support there would be appreciated. I'm pretty proud of him, and he, he works his butt off. So Awesome. All right. Thank you guys for watching, and thank Thanks, you. Man. This was incredibly fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. See, we real estate disruptors. Can't nobody touch us. And yeah, we about to give you game. Shout out to Steve Train. Real estate disruptors. They cannot touch us. And yeah, we about to give you game. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We about to give you game. REI's flowing through my veins. And you don't have to look no further. See right here, you gon' learn everything. Shout out to Steve Train.